Hello and welcome to Giant Mess, a sloppy sports and entertainment talk show about movies, comedy, TV, the New York Giants, New York Mets, and a whole lot more. It's hosted by a giant mess. That's me, Neil Lynch, the real cinch. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Jojo Rabbit, Knives Out, Ford versus Ferrari, After Midnight, Coherence, Mets Spring Training, Giants Free Agency, and the upcoming NFL Draft. It's a jam-packed episode, and somehow, some way, I'm going to fit all that, I'm going to shoehorn that, I'm going to push all that into about an hour. It's it's a lofty ambition. We'll see if it can happen. I'm in a good mood for once. Uh, must be the Lexapro. That's the only thing I can think of. <laughs> Just got back from a play date. My daughter's first play date of her life and of my life as a parent, as a father. And it went well, really well. So if that's how all play dates are, I'm all for it. Um... So let's dive right in. I'm in a good mood. I'm ready to get right to the thick of things, right to the meat sauce. Let's get right to the cool. Beautiful day in the neighborhood. Uh, Mr. Rogers, not a biopic about Mr. Rogers. They made that clear, even though this is Fred Rogers is getting interviewed and he's in the film the majority of the time. And it seems to be about how he handles his shit. It was not a biopic about Mr. Rogers. Instead, it was about the, well, inspired by the article, Can You Say Hero? in the November 1998 uh, edition of Esquire magazine by a writer named Tom Junod, Junod, kind of like Stunad, but like with a little June at the beginning. Uh, And it's, they don't use his name. And I don't think they, it's entirely factually correct about Tom Junod's life. They kind of inserted a lot of things, to, I think, to spice it up a little bit. Uh, Tom Hanks plays Fred Rogers. Matthew Reese from The Americans. Matthew Rice? Reese? I don't know. I'm sure I'll get hate for that. Uh, learn, how to, learn how to say his name, you fuckface. Oh, okay. I will. Um, anyway, that dude from The Americans um, plays Lloyd Vogel. Main character Lloyd Vogel, who is the uh, I guess the character based upon Tom Junod, Junod, Chris Cooper, who uh, seemingly always plays the bad guy, plays Jerry Vogel, who's Lloyd Vogel's dad, strange dad, I don't know, Susan Kalechi Watson as Andrea Vogel, Marianne Plunkett as Joanne Rogers, Enrico Colatone. Is Bill Eisler, Wendy McKenna's Dorothy. Uh, critics consensus. Did I even not? Did I even not? Did I even not? Jesus. It's directed by Mariel Heller, who also directed Can You Ever Forgive Me with uh, Melissa McCarthy. Uh, movie I can't bring myself to watch. I, sorry, not sorry. Um, I guess she also directed couple episodes of Casual, which I think is a show on Hulu, and then Transparent, which is a show on Amazon Prime, um, and also The Diary of the Teenage Girl, which I, hmm, probably not great for my demo. My demo is not interested, 
but I've seen it and I've been tempted to see it. I've seen it, you know, pop up the thumbnail and I don't want to click on it and I want to watch it, but I can't, ultimately can't bring myself to do it. Uh, written by Mika Fitzsermon Blue, who also wrote Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, and uh, episode of Transparent, and Noah Harpster, who I guess just doesn't have credits. Cool, Neil. Good thing you wrote that down. Uh, the Critics' Consensus from Rotten Tomatoes. Much like the beloved TV personality that inspired A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, offers a powerfully affecting message about acceptance and understanding. Yeah, big time. 95% of critics gave it a favorable review with an average rating of around 8 out of 10. 92% of the audience gave it a favorable review with an average score of 4.53 out of 5. I'd say, yeah, give it a 4 out of 5. Why not? Uh, I opened at number 3, uh, opened around Thanksgiving at number 3, fell out of the top 10 Christmas week, pulled in, um, and this is, this is what really gets me, and that's, probably why it took so long for this movie to actually come to fruition is that he's very well known. Mr. Rogers is very well known in the States domestically, but in terms of like internationally, I don't think anyone really knows who this guy is, which is sad because he seems like there's no reason why he, you know, let's translate this dude. You know, let's get some translations up on this piece and broadcast him worldwide because I think he would help uh he'd help out a lot of people around the planet. Sixty one point six million domestically, five point six million dollars internationally. I don't get that. Total gross of sixty seven million dollars, which is I mean, I remember seeing the trailer for this and I thought oh, this is gonna be like People are going to flock to this movie because he's so beloved. And uh, and I was dead wrong. I w- if you would have said, hey, what do you think the, the, the total take for this movie was after it was all said and done? I'd say if you told me under $100 million, I'd, I'd slap you right in the titty. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. That's a travesty. Ugh. Days before the film premiered, Ancestry confirmed that Tom Hanks and Fred Rogers are actually sixth cousins. And this is the ninth film where Tom Hanks has portrayed a real-life person. Uh, This is the third time Tom Hanks has played a distant cousin of his. (laughs) We want to talk about Illuminati. Side note, I've I've been followed now by two different people who who claim to be part of the Illuminati. Or maybe you just are, are about about it. Maybe they're not in it, but they like it, and they they're following me for some reason. No clue why. I'm not I'm not a member of the Illuminati. I mean that's pretty obvious. Um, but I wouldn't. I think Tom Hanks is. I mean, he's the third time he played a distant cousin. He's also distantly related to Walt Disney, who he played in Saving Mr. Banks, and also Ben Bradley, who play he played in the the movie The Post. Um. Fred Rogers was known to be extremely difficult to interview because he cared more about the person interviewing than he did uh, being interviewed and would often use the time to befriend the person interviewing him. I found that I was right there with Luke Vogel. Luke Vogel? Lloyd Vogel. Wow. Uh, 
when he's trying to just ask simple, straightforward questions to Mr. Rogers and Mr. Rogers is like, what about you and your father? It's just like, it's like, thank you, Mr. Rogers for caring about me and my, my family life and all that is wrong and awful with, uh, with my family dynamic. Appreciate that. But, uh, I'm right there with Lloyd when it comes to like that scene where it's Mr. Rogers like kind of in the chair and then Lloyd's on the, the couch and he's just trying to ask him questions. I think they're probably pretty deep into it at this point. You know, it's supposed to be like a <laughs> unbelievably, it's supposed to be like a 300 word article. That's like a blog post. So it's like the minimum required for a blog post nowadays. And that was what, the uh, I guess the editor in chief or whatever went out of Lloyd Vogel, um, but uh, you know Lloyd's trying to ask him a straightforward question, and Mister Rogers breaks out the puppets, dude, the puppets, and and then starts talking to Lloyd as if Lloyd were a child with the puppet. I I don't know how I would have been steamed, steam just coming out all kinds of orifices if that happened to me, just anger. Cause I've been where Lloyd has been with just the f- frustration and anger. Um, you know, I didn't have that messed up relationship with my parents that, that Lloyd did. Um, and apparently Tom, you know, the actual writer didn't, he said, you know, uh, no, my sister is not married. Didn't have a wedding. I didn't punch my father in the face. I didn't get punched him in the face at my sister's wedding. You know, it's just like, all the little tricks of the trade that screenwriters throw in there to get you more emotionally invested, which uh, I, I'm not, I'm gonna kind of hate on them for that. Can you imagine this this movie with it if it weren't for that father son relationship? And it's just an interview with Fred Rogers and him being all calm and sedate, and 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 the more calm that he gets, the more angry I get. <laughs> that would have been, I don't know if that would have uh, done any better, but. Tom Hanks is brilliant as Mr. Rogers, that's for sure. Uh, but yeah, that that the one scene where he breaks out the puppet, I, I, oh, I don't know if I would have had the patience on that one. Um, and then you know Lloyd going in on uh, Tom Hanks, going in on Fred Rogers, Tom Hanks as Fred Rogers, saying like, "Well, how are how is how are your sons? I heard that they didn't handle it so well," and you could see that he gets. That gets under Fred Rogers' skin a little bit. And it's also nice to hear from the wife. I wish they would have had a little more with Mrs. Rogers, Fred Rogers' wife, because it seems like she she knew him best out of anyone and could really give us the give us the full picture of who Mr. Rogers was. Um it would have been nice to see like his sons too, like just to just to know that he's not you know, like Mrs. Rogers said, he's not a martyr. He's not a saint. He's just a, he's a normal human being like the, like any of us, but he just, he tries really hard, <laughs> which is saying, saying more than 99% of the population. But yeah, his sons, and you could see that, that, because Tom Hanks too, if you look at Tom Hanks, he's got Colin Hanks, who's kind of like just, you know, has that same kind of OG golly, uh, wholesome, likable uh, aesthetic, I guess, uh, persona. And then you have Chet Hanks, who's like a 
rapper who I guess now is, uh, he talks like he's Jamaican. <laughs> so, yeah, I always, I always found that interesting. Like we always look at Tom Hanks as like America's dad is kind of the num- moniker we some people have put on Tom Hanks. And it's like, you know, just like Mr. Rogers is probably not, you know, the perfect father that everyone wants. Well, guess what? His two sons had some issues with him. I'm sure Chet Hanks has not has maybe not seen eye to eye with his dad, or maybe his dad is not entirely on board with what's going on with Chet Hanks. You know, nobody's perfect. So I thought that was interesting. For some reason, my mind went there when Lloyd asks Mr. Rogers about his sons. And I was like, it's almost like you're seeing Tom Hanks take that personally as if the guy's asking Tom Hanks about his two sons. So, I mean, they couldn't have, they couldn't have cast the role any better than they did. Um, how about Lloyd's brother-in-law asking Mr. Rogers about what rifle he used was based on an internet urban legend that Rogers fought in the Vietnam war. I definitely remember hearing that. Um, but, I mean, can you picture, can you just close your eyes and just Calgon take me away to Nam, where Mr. Rogers is just like in the jungle, like, you know, hacking away at plant life with a machete. And he's like, you know, stalking up on people and slicing, ripping throats like MacGruber. No, it's just, uh. I mean that 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 there there's an idea, and if anyone wants to run with that, go ahead. Like a like a Mister Rogers version of MacGruber or Rambo, where it's like he has seen such hell and mayhem and and nightmarish scenarios in war that he he just does a complete one eighty and is and is now a children's entertainer. Is <laughs> all uh, sunshine and rainbows, but I guess that's the point though. Uh, Mr. Rogers about Mr. Rogers is that he wasn't afraid to really get on a kid's level and say, you know, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be angry, but let's find out why you're sad and why you're angry and talk through it as opposed to acting out and lashing out, which, uh, you know, more adults should do that. And we don't. It's so weird how like we go through, we, as kids, we're kind of like, we try to, you know, we had that kind of guidance, whether it be Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers. And then we get older and it just kind of like goes all out the window. We're just like, fuck that. Fuck you. (laughs) The whole nine. Ah, so here's the, here's my point about the international box office not being great. Matthew Reese. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Uh, He was born and raised in the United Kingdom, and he's never heard of Fred Rogers or Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood before reading reading the script, which is bananas. Like, okay, you've been born and raised in the UK, but, like, you're an actor. You've done the Americans. You've obviously been in America doing your acting thing. And in that time, you never heard of Mr. Fucking Rogers. I mean, that's, and that's probably what a lot of the studios thought. They're just like, oh yeah, Mr. Rogers, like he's a worldwide icon. 
we're going to nail the, knock this out of the friggin' park. And then it's like, oh, less than 70 mil. Wow. The less than six mil internationally is just, I, I don't know if I can digest that. Here's something I really loved about the movie. Every location change in the movie was depicted with a scaled-down model of each place, much like what you see in an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Uh, and then the, the, the scene that, that really kind of stuck out to me, and I didn't really pick up on it at first, but the more I think back on it and the, and the, and the more that I read these IMDb trivia points, which I've been reading off to you, is when they, I guess they're in the restaurant or diner, and it's him and Mr. Rogers and Lloyd Vogel, and Mr. Rogers is like, I just want you to like close your eyes and just, and just be quiet and try to be quiet. Close your eyes. And it was almost like, you know, yoga-ish. It was like, you know, meditative state. Um, uh, anyway, Tom Hanks' extended look at the camera in the restaurant scene was the first artistic decision made by uh, the director on this film. Script had this down as just a moment where you could not be certain if he was looking at the audience and then Heller prolonged this, making sure viewers knew he's looking at you. Um, I'm so dumb I didn't realize he was looking at me. I'm also going blind in my right eye. Uh, so that's that. I, there's like this huge, and it started off as kind of like maybe marble-sized kind of blind spot or like a flash. You know how when you close your eyes, when you go to bed and you close your eyes and it's like that little, you know, you can still see like weird flashes and stuff. Maybe it's just me. That little marble is now like a friggin' full on grape. So I'm having trouble seeing things. <laughs> Just when my mental health is getting better, now my physical health is going down the shitter. Sweet. Uh but I I didn't even know he was looking at the camera. I I thought he was kinda like like they had a close up of him and he's kinda like, you know, his eyes kinda closed and I just thought, Oh, he's looking past the camera to someone like in the back of the restaurant. <laughs> um, but yeah, good wholesome film. I appreciated it. I got a lot out of it. It's, 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 you know, kind of sad to say that, uh, well, you know, it was also, you know, he, Mr. Rogers passed in 2003 and this this article was November ninety eight, so this probably was taking place over the course of ninety eight, maybe ninety. I don't know if it went to back as far as ninety seven, but definitely ninety eight. So this would have been like my senior year in high school, going into my freshman year in college. But they had a bunch of shots of those modeled scaled models where like the twin towers were <sighs> were in the shot. Hmm. For some reason, I thought that was like a foreshadowing of, are we going to see how Mr. Rogers like responded and replied to 9-11? Like, is that, is that really going to happen? But no, it did not happen. <laughs> um, but yeah, it spoke to me. You know, Lloyd Vogel in the movie was a, a, a new father, um, kind of buried himself in his work and, you know, through this interview with Mr. Rogers, kind of realized that 
you don't want to hold on to grudges. And so he kind of reconnected with his estranged father and his father got sick. And so he went to his side and they, they kind of made amends. And, uh, I just, I just, I don't, I still don't think Mr. Rogers is human, even though his wife thinks, says so. I just don't, I just, oh my gosh. The patience, the gratitude. And yeah, she said he has to practice that. And that's something he has to practice and get down. And I just don't, I don't think I have it in me. I don't think a lot of people have it in them, but that stinks about the box office. I cannot shake that. So, yeah, it was uh, it was not as much of a tearjerker as I thought it would be. I remember seeing the trailer and I was like, I'm going to friggin' cry my balls off to this movie. And I don't think I cried. I mean, I definitely, there were a lot of times where, uh, you know, you definitely feel like, and that's the whole point of that restaurant scene where he's talking directly to you. And it, it kind of felt like, okay, yeah, I get it, Mr. Rogers, but like no no tears. Interesting. Um, Tom Hanks revealed he first heard about the film 10 years ago and then he read the script eight years ago. Oh, man. It's such a long, long time. 2010 to 2012, like this was... This first entered Tom Hanks' sphere, realm, and then it just just now came out, and 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 it's probably one of the lower grossing movies he's ever done, which is just insane. So that's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Uh, let's talk about Jojo Rabbit. What a flick! So beautiful day. I'd say eh, four to five, three and a half to four out of five. I'd give it Jojo Rabbit is like four, four and a half out of five. I really like this movie. Um, came out November 8th, day before my birthday. Hour 48 minutes, PG-13. Comedy drama. Uh, it was written and directed by Taika... Taika Watiti. Yeah, I'm definitely butchering that. You know what? I, what do you want? Like, Seriously. People take that in the front when I mispronounce things. Like, oh, so disrespectful. It's like, take the time to learn it. Yeah, I guess I could take the time to learn it. That's on me. I still don't, you know, it's not no disrespect. Uh, YTT also plays the, not the real life Adolf, not the real Adolf Hitler, but the imaginary Adolf Hitler that this kid <laughs> growing up in Nazi Germany uh, imagines to... Uh, that he talks to um roman griffin davis who i you know kid actors child actors are tough you know they kind of they can i'd say the majority of the time i'm just like i can't take this kid actor can't take it but this roman griffin davis fucking nailed it i think he did an amazing job uh thomason mckenzie plays elsa who is the uh, Jewish girl who is hiding in uh, the attic. Scarlett Johansson plays Rosie, who's uh, JoJo's mother. So Roman Griffith Davis, the kid actor, plays JoJo, the titular, titular character. 
Uh, Elsa plays the woman hiding in JoJo's attic. Scarlet ScarJo's Rosie, who she got nominated for an Oscar for this, and I, I really think she she having seen this and having seen a bunch of other movies, I still have not seen Marriage Story, but I can assure you, and I'm pretty confident that ScarJo did way better than uh, Laura Dern. No offense. Um, Sam Rockwell killed it again as Captain Kenzadorf, Kenzadorf, Captain K. Rebel Wilson was Fräulein Rom, who, mm, yeah, she gave a couple laughs here and there. You know, it's, it's it was like Rebel Wilson playing Rebel Wilson. Is you see her, and it's just like that's Rebel Wilson. You don't see the character that she's playing. Um, Stephen Merchant played one of the Gestapo. His uh, his scene was pretty memorable. <laughs> And I think that's pretty much it for people that you wouldn't know. Um, but Taika, Taika Watiti, he, I think he wrote and directed What We Do in the Shadows, which was a pretty good vampire comedy. The Inbetweeners, which I think was a, TV, a British TV show, maybe, or New Zealand, Australian TV show. It's supposed to be pretty funny. I've never checked out. He also did a few episodes of Flay of the Concords, which makes sense. Um, I remember seeing Hunt for the Wilder People. I think that's the one that really put YTT on everyone's radar. Kind of his breakthrough movie or film, I think. Even though What We Do in the Shadows, that was pretty good as well. And of course, he uh, directed Thor Ragnarok, which is the best of the Thor movies and is going to do the upcoming Thor Love and Thunder, which I'm very much looking forward to. Uh, Jojo Rabbit. Pulled in 32.8 mil domestically, 53.2 internationally for a worldwide take of 86 mil. And it didn't hit a thousand theaters in release until like mid to late January. So that's that's pretty impressive. It it like never really got into the top 10, but just it just hangs around, stuck around kind of in that 10 to 20 range, but for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. The critics' consensus from Rotten Tomatoes, Jojo Rabbit's blend of irreverent humor and serious ideas definitely won't be to everyone's taste, but either way, the anti-hate satire is audacious to a fault. 80% of critics gave it a favorable review, uh, the 7.52 out of 10 rating. 95% of the audience gave it a favorable review with 4.6 out of 5 as the average rating. Um, yeah, I'm right there with the audience. I'm not sure what the critics are hating on. Um, I mean, from the opening scene, from the opening, that opening scene, I didn't know what I was getting into with this movie. I was like, I don't know how I feel about this movie. I kept seeing promos and trailers and I was just like, this is how do people feel about this? It feels like it's so inappropriate and so offensive to just have a, such a small kid with his imaginary friend is Hitler. And like, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this. Like, am I going to be able to laugh? We're in such a sensitive time now, all that shit. And, uh, no, they, I mean, it was, they, it was perfect in almost every way the way they handled it. Um, when Taika Waititi uh, was asked about why he chose to play the role of Adolf Hitler, uh, 
um, him being, uh, he's Maori Jewish, Maori Jewish. And so to, when he was asked why, he said the answer is simple. What better fuck you to the guy? <laughs> it's like the guy's, Hitler's dead and gone and we're still like, fuck you. It's like, yeah. Uh, film is based on a novel called Caging Skies, which Waititi's mom turned him on to. And he said that imaginary Hitler is not in the book. Uh, he did such a, such an amazing job as Hitler. I mean, him like constantly offering Jojo the cigarettes, even, you know, even though in real life, Watiti is like disgusted and grossed out by cigarettes. The fact that that was such a, that running gag always got me like him offering up the ciggies to, uh, to the 10 year old. Eventually the kid's like, I'm 10. What are you doing? Um, I love that. The scene with the Gestapo, which I mentioned was Stephen Merchant comes to Jojo's house. Heil Hitler is said 31 times in one minute. <laughs> I mean, but that's, it's what he wanted something funny, but that's apparently, I mean, that is how ridiculous the Nazi protocols were that you, every time that's said, you have to say it back. You can't just do one group, big group one. You got to do it to each person. Insane. Uh, At multiple points in the movie, Rosie is seen dancing, yet her upper body isn't shown. Instead, the camera frame shoots her feet with particular nose to her red and white leather shoes. And, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, I, I remember seeing those scenes, and I was like, interesting that they're paying... Like, this is not Quentin Tarantino we're dealing with here. Like, what's with the fascination with the feet in this movie? We know that YTT... I'm pretty sure YTT doesn't have a foot fetish like Tarantino. So why is he focusing on her feet and the shoes in particular? She's always wearing those shoes. Why is he focusing on the shoes? And then, of course, uh, spoiler alert, we found out towards the end. Oh, what what a moment. What a moment. So, yeah, spoiler, like when he, when he walks up. So, I mean, they expertly laid it out, right? So... We see Rosie and Jojo walking through kind of like the town square and it's, uh, well, that was one of the things that I think helps differentiate this movie from most World War II movies is that it's very bright and full of color and vibrant. And I think YTT did that because, uh, I mean, that's, that's how Germany actually was, apparently. It wasn't this grim and dark place where, you know, uh, like the setting and the ambiance didn't match the evil that was actually going on, you know, because from, I guess, the majority of the, the people that lived there and were going through at the time, they didn't see it as an evil. They saw it as, uh, you know, the right thing, the moral thing. It was right what was right and what was in line with, you know, their country's pride, uh, you know. I just it still blows my mind that you can get a whole country to get on board with with that and to dupe so many people. But I guess that there was just the time. Um, but anyway, so there's this kind of colorful and bright, cheery almost disposition, uh, with the clothing and the the coloring and the and the and the people and 
you know, there wasn't this pervasive prevailing like thought of like, uh, we're, we're taking over the world and we're mass murdering a whole whole group of people. Um, so the, the, the 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 filmmaker's ability to like oh yeah Rosie and Jojo and Rosie is a very like lovable likable woman who is funny and smart and witty but also we get to see her in that scene in the town square with Jojo where they see the people hanging and sh- and you know she has that kind of like profound quote about uh of course I forgot it so profound I forgot it ha <laughs> ha um, but it was something about they, they gave their lives for it or something like that. So, um, that foreshadowing, uh, oh, what a heart wrenching scene though, with Jojo just walking and, uh, he just kind of stops where the people are hanging and you just see like the red and white shoes just like swinging in the wind. Oh boy. God damn it, that sucked. Um, but like the the chemistry and the interactions between Rosie and I mean not Rosie. Well, yeah, Rosie and Jojo. I mean, Rosie, like, you know, when she gets upset at the dinner table and walks over to the chimney and slaps on the the charcoal or dust onto her face to make it look like a beard, to make it look like the kid's dad. And goes over and starts talking like the dad to the kid. It was just like, this is so out there, but so amazing, you know? It's really high quality stuff. I still, it's like, after seeing it now, I was like, I remember seeing that clip, uh, like, at the Oscars when they were announcing the nominees. And I was like, oh, ScarJo's going to win this for sure. And then I now I've seen the movie, and I'm just like, what the hell did Laura Dern do in Marriage Story to, to get to get that win? Whew. Um, but awards, you know, awards are only mean so much. If, if people who have seen your work know and appreciate what you do, ScarJo, if you're listening, um, delusional. So, <laughs> uh, but what was I saying about? Oh, JoJo and Elsa, the the interaction and chemistry there, um. The fact that, you know, I think most dramas have gone down that road of like the kid, you know, getting serious and the and the girl giving serious responses, but instead she like leaned into and played into all the stereotypes that about Jews that the, the Germans and the Nazis had. I just <laughs> thought that was so clever and so, you know, original. Um but you want to talk about heart wrenching. So of course him discovering his mom was the worst, but the moment where it looks like, yeah, pretty much the Nazi forces have lost and the Americans and the Russians, I guess are advancing and have occupied uh, the town where they are. And he goes up to like where else is hiding. And, and she's like, who won? And he, and he's, he has that moment where he's trying to think like, if I say that the Americans won or that the allied forces have won and the Nazi third Reich has lost, I'm losing this 
this girl that I've fallen for and that I've fallen in love with. And I don't want to lose her because I know if she is free, like she's want to get as far away from here as possible. She wants nothing to do with me or my kind. And so him saying, uh, oh, the Germans won. Yeah, we won. Uh, yeah, it was rough, but it all worked out, I guess. I don't know. Where's the dad? That was another thing. I was like, so I guess did the dad die? Feels like the dad must have died in war or something like that, and Rosie didn't want him to know. But then it did. They never really followed up on that. Thought that was interesting. Taika Waititi is so goddamn funny. I, I I'd imagine. I mean, he plays like the uh, in Thor Ragnarok. He plays like the rock monster type thing, the big rock monster dude with the high kind of pitched voice who I guess made another cameo in Endgame, I think, where it's like Fat Thor, <laughs> when Thor's all down and out and like put on a lot of weight and is just playing video games and like drinking all the time. <laughs> YTT is like pretty much hitting next level. And I think he should ride this out for, he should have another like five to 10 years of like great success. Uh, but he said, uh, of the, of the scene with, with Rosie and Jojo, where Jojo discovers her, he's like, I don't like the idea of seeing people hang. Um, and that's what led in part to the reveal of Rosie's death without showing her face. He adds that seeing your dead loved one is an intimate thing and that we didn't have permission to see what Jojo saw, which, and I appreciate that. I mean, that was just as effective. It was just, it was just as like a punch to the gut. It was like, no, like, cause you kind of, they, they, and it didn't come out of left field and it would, they built to it as about as good as you can, you know, her making note of the people that were hanging and then her and her every discussion or conversation she had with Jojo, you know, it was pretty clear that, uh, you know, she was walking a fine line and playing a dangerous game and it, and it caught up with her. Ugh. Just stinks. But uh, I was hoping to get a little more clarity on Inga, I guess, her daughter, JoJo's brother. That just was not, I don't, unless I missed it, they never really went into detail about what happened to her. I guess, you know, I guess she died, but like, um, would have would have been nice to know a little bit more about that situation, and the father too. But I understand you don't want to get too far away from the 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 main storyline here, which is essentially like JoJo, Rosie, Elsa. But um, I don't know. Questions I have that will never be answered. Captain Kleinsdorf, who is a Sam Rockwell character, who <laughs> I mean that like one of the opening scenes where the I guess the Hitler youth or whatever, the young Hitler army where all the boys and girls go to like a summer camp almost where they go through like a military training where they get knives. <laughs> um, and Sam Rockwell's on the stage and he's like, he's all disheveled and, and drunk and like talking. Uh, what a great character. Um, and then, uh, yeah, like, the 
I guess the one scene where Rosie busts into the office and you see him like kind of very close to, I believe the guy who played Rake in Game of Thrones, Reek in Game of Thrones, that guy, the hell is his name again? Uh, Greystone, Greyborn, I don't know. But you could tell they had a thing going on, right? Right at that moment, we're like, whoa, oh, 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 okay, okay. Anyway, it's implied throughout the film that uh, his character's gay. And then people are saying that explains why he vouches for Elsa in the Gestapo scene. Uh, Jewish and homosexual people were both targeted by the Nazis in the Holocaust. So he was in a similar situation to her and likely saw it was a duty to protect the fellow discriminated person. Which can you imagine being in his boots where you're fighting for the for the Nazis and the Nazis hate you, but they don't know that you're gay? I just, what a life. And that's your life. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that's Jojo Rabbit. Highly recommend. Um, you can see why YTT won screenplay for best adapted screenplay, uh, won Oscar for that. Um, apparently he wrote it in like 2011. And I think it was just a case of just like, like, how, how do I get, like, who do I need to convince and how do I get this on in a theater or like made? I, you know, just a, just a very bold move on his part. And it paid off because, I mean, I was like, I don't know how they're going to be able to pull this off. And I was like, I don't even know if I'm I I am going to be able to watch this. And I watched it and I loved it. So kudos to him. All right, let's talk about Knives Out. I just saw this this past weekend. Uh, PG-13. Two hours, 11 minutes, comedy crime drama came out right around, I guess, on Thanksgiving Day, maybe? Right around Thanksgiving. Written directed by Ryan Johnson, who directed The Last Jedi. Also, a few episodes of Breaking Bad and uh, one of my favorite sci-fi movies of all time, Looper, with Bruce Willis and JGL, which I feel like I mentioned Looper once an episode. <laughs> it's like, like, if this were a popular show, and I actually had fans and followers, like a fan or follower would put together like a, a compilation of me saying Looper. Ugh. Um, stars Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc, the private investigator hired anonymously to investigate the supposed suicide of a patriarch of a wealthy family. Chris Evans as Ransom Drydale, Hugh Ransom Drysdale. Uh, who is uh, the son of Don Johnson and Jamie Lee Curtis's characters, Linda, Richard and Linda Drysdale, Michael Shannon, one of my all-time favorite actors. Uh, he plays Walt Thromby, who is, uh, I guess, one of uh, the son, the only son, right? The only son of Harlan Thromby, who's played by Christopher Plummer. Lakeith Stanfield, who is becoming one of my favorite characters of all time, uh, characters, actors of all time, kind of an interesting casting choice 
here. And I, I, there was definitely a moment where I was like, wait, what's going on here? Like, it feels like that the one of the opening montage of scenes where like the Lakeith Stanfield's character, who's like one of the police detectives is questioning all the family members. And then you had, you had just like Daniel Craig in the background laying in the cut. Um, and it was like, why can't these characters just be like, why is there, why is there the need for Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Craig? It feels like it, it you could just have one or the other. But, uh, you know, after watching the movie, yeah, I mean, I get why that that character was necessary. Because it was like, okay, you have pretty much the, the police detective who is just like, this is shut, open and shut. Like, let's just get through this. We know we it's pretty straightforward. Like, you know, whatever. And then you have Benoit Blanc who's willing to kind of go the extra mile and peel back the onion. Tony Collette is Joni Thromby. Uh, Catherine Langford from uh, 13 Reasons, uh, whatever that stupid show was on Netflix, 13 Reasons Why, something like that, uh, is Meg Thromby. And then Ana de Armas as Marta Cabrera, who did a exceptional job. Really amazing job. She's from, uh, and my wife pointed out, she's like, she looks familiar. And, and then it started to click. And I was like, oh, and then she actually looked it up. She was in War Dogs. I think she was Miles Teller's character's girl in War Dogs. And then was also in Blade Runner 2049 as, a, as like that hologram that the Goss god, Ryan Gosling, falls with. Falls for. Um. And I feel like this movie, she was in her, her was, she was in like full force. <laughs> it was just like, yay, yay, yay. Um, the critics' consensus from Rotten Tomatoes is that Knives Out sharpens old murder mystery tropes with a keenly assembled supreme suspense outing that makes brilliant use of writer director Ryan Johnson's stellar ensemble. I mean, yeah. I remember, you know, when I did my review of Ready or Not, I was like, this feels a lot like Knives Out. I feel like both of these were inspired by Clue, you know, from uh, the mid-80s, 1985, I think it was. Ironically enough, Tony Collette was in Clue. I believe she was the maid, housemaid, um, who I, I definitely, I, even as a kid, I was like, that is, she is attractive. Um, so... <laughs> Take that for what's worth. Uh, 97% of critics gave it a favorable review with an 8.31 out of 10 rating. Average rating and 92% of the audience uh, gave it a favorable review with 4.44 out of 5 rating. Did 160, almost 165 mil domestically, 143 mil internationally for a worldwide take of around 308 million on a budget of 40. Opened at number four, didn't leave the top 10 until February. That's what we call likes. Um, yeah, I, I will say this. So I, I don't do non-spoiler reviews. I mean, it, the non-spoiler review is like amazing cast, awesomely directed, uh, 
beautifully written, beautiful performances, just from start to finish. Uh, I will say, though, you know, I had it had me questioning myself throughout the movie, okay? But at the same time, one of your characters' names is Ransom, and you're not going to, like, that. The guy's name is Ransom. I guess I should have said spoiler alert, but like, isn't that his name a spoiler alert? <laughs> yes, it is. Chris Evans' character is named Ransom. And it's like, even when he's trying to help her out, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but your name is Ransom. So it's like, you know, for, I mean, I guess, I guess for the better part of half of the movie, I'm just like, okay, well, he's obvious, he's obviously doing something wrong here. I mean, you can't just name a kid, name the kid ransom. I thought, you know, and far be it from me. I'm not, I'm not, criti- I don't know. I guess I am criticizing it a little bit. I love the movie. Okay. Don't get me wrong. I love the movie. It was a great movie. I think the, what would have really put this over the top for me is if we find out that Ransom is not guilty and it was actually Marta who who pulled this off and was the, like the evil genius behind all this. I thought that would have been how you like put it over the top for me personally, but I know for most people they, they would have been like, oh, fuck that and hated it. So, you know, they probably made the right decision. But for me, it was like, Oh, so yeah, Ransom Ransom did all this. Somehow Ransom's involved and he, you know, made all this happen. So even though I kind of knew what was going on, uh, it was still enjoyable to watch and unfold. Um, and then they got Knives Out too. Is uh, already got the green light, so that's good to hear. I don't, I'm not quite sure how they're going to go about it. I mean, you know, I was talking to a friend today at the at the play date, <laughs> and uh, he was like, "Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. I feel like they could do this. They could pump out like ten of these, and people will watch it every time." Um, the question is, like, okay, you, I guess you don't. I guess you keep Daniel Craig because he'll be like the main common thread between the movies, but you just you focus on him investigating all kinds of different things. Um. But I mean, the characters, every character is fleshed out and, and, uh, and, uh, several characters refer to a fictional Hallmark movie starring Danica McKellar titled Deadly by Surprise. And, uh, though McKellar was not asked if she, her name could be used, she was delighted that it was included and she shared her love for her, for this film on Instagram. Later sent director, later sent Ryan Johnson a knife with the words Deadly by Surprise engraved on it. So I feel like, Knives Out 2, you gotta have Danica McKellar in it as Danica McKellar. I feel like that's a no-brainer layup, slam dunk. Um, Both the title Knives Out and the working title Morning Bell are tracks from the album Amnesiac from Radiohead, which came out in 2001, which I have on compact disc. Um, that was a good. That was a good CD to... For like, if you are not the driver on a road trip and you could just put on some headphones 
for a road trip and just fucking conk out. Cause it was it that that album was like pretty it was discordant at times, whereas like uh these songs sounds should not be together, but then at the same time it was also hypnotic. And I feel like it, it could definitely send you into a trance. Uh Marta's condition of not being able to to lie without throwing up is not a documented disorder. Yeah. Uh, okay. I would have believed you if you said it was a documented disorder for the record. I would have been like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Stranger things have happened. Um, but I thought that I thought somehow like ransom felt too on the nose for me. I was like, there's no there's gotta be some other layer here that I'm not seeing where it's like you know, all signs are pointing to ransom as being the bad dude. And then like Marta has somehow been able to fake this condition where she throws up when she's lying to get people to think that she's telling the truth when she doesn't throw up. And so maybe she's using that to her advantage and she is actually lying. You know, she's able to like somehow vomit on command to make people think she is lying when it really, she's telling the truth. I, I don't know. I thought there was going to be a little dipsy do dunkaroo twist at the end. <laughs> Been watching too much M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, this was cool. The first time Marta is seen at the thron- the Thromby house, she's looking upwards at the house, members of the family from the driveway. Uh, in the last scene, the surviving members of the Thromby family are all standing in the same spot where she was in the driveway, looking up at Marta on the balcony. Um, nice little role reversal there. Ryan Johnson, uh, I don't know if this is true, but... It, be kind of cool. Ryan Johnson named the main characters after musical artists from the 70s. Walt and Donna are named after Walt and Donald from Steely Dan. Joni is Joni Mitchell, and her dead husband was named Neil Young. Neil. Lastly, Linda and Richard are named for Linda and Richard Thompson. Uh, so these these are a couple big ass paragraphs from IMDb trivia, but it's worth noting. Harlan Thromby asked Marta how she always beats him at go, and she responds, "You're playing to win. I'm playing to make a pretty pattern." This nicely foreshadows Marta's arc. While the Thromby family members try to lie, cheat, and manipulate their way into her- inheriting Harlan's estate, Marta is the only person who repeatedly attempts to do the right thing, even at her own expense. She ends up inheriting everything that she wins. They call it Go, but even though there are only a few shots of the game in progress, there are enough to identify they're actually playing Gomoku, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah. Uh, that, that scene, too, where they they she's walking Benoit Blanc through what, hap- what actually happened that night, and she's like, oh, it's going to take you 10 minutes before you basically die. And he's like, well, it's been eight-ish. And he he was not experiencing any of the symptoms that she was talking about. And at that point, I was like, oh, well, he obviously didn't didn't get the the opiates or the 100 milligrams of the opiates that would kill him like within 10 minutes because it's been, um, you know, over eight and he's still got his wits about him and he's still like formulating a plan. And as soon as like, you know, she couldn't find the Narcam or whatever, the Narcolox, whatever it's called, that can reverse the opiates. 
Uh, I was like, okay, something is afoot, as they say later on in the movie. Uh, speaking of, at one point, a baseball in Harlan's desk is picked up and thrown out the window of the office. That's when uh, Don Johnson's character figures out that Or he he finds the letter because he's frantically searching for this letter that Harlan was going to send to his daughter, basically exposing um, her husband's extramarital affairs. And Don Johnson finds the letter and it's blank. And he's like, ah, he gets so pissed. He takes the baseball that's on that little statue and throws out the window. And then they cut to Benoit Blanc, like walking around the premises with the two police detectives. And he says the game is afoot, which is a reference to Sherlock Holmes, meaning the search continues. And then the baseball. I mean, this is what I aspire to with screenwriting is to, is the, is the little things like throwing a baseball out a window from one character Benoit Blanc then comes, finds the baseball, and that baseball is then handed off, and we follow that baseball to char- from character to character. <laughs> and the baseball, so this says, the baseball represents the game being in play. And when the mes- mystery is finally solved, the ball goes back onto the desk, symbolizing the end of the game search. Shit like that, man. I love it. And that's what I hope to do with my screenwriting, which I'll never, yeah, man, I, you know, that's, but it's also like, I think of stuff like that. And I'm like, ah, I have to include that in my screenplay, but it's like every movie I see, I pick up something that I want to input in my screenplay. And by the time I get done with the screenplay, it's going to be so much shit in it. People are going to be like, yo, dude, this is like way too nuts. Like, you know, our top scholars and scientists will look at this 100 years from now and they won't be able to figure it out. It's like a Rubik's Cube on top of a Rubik's Cube inside of a Rubik's Cube. Yeah. Just write a dumb action movie. You know? Get that out of your system and then work from there instead of just trying to do like this layered cross-genre <laughs> movie. Not good. All right. When Benoit Blanc is first seen by the audience, he's sitting in the study listening to the Lieutenant Elliot question the thrombus. Yeah, so this is the scene I was talking about. Um, and he keeps playing the same note on the piano at, at random intervals, it seems like. And uh, I was like, okay. This is one of those movies where, and I do this with every movie, and I've said this before, like anytime I'm done with a movie, I immediately like go to IMDb and I look at the IMDb trivia. And I was like, I this is... I hope to God that this piano playing note thing that he does in this scene is in IMDb trivia and show enough it is. So turns out it's not random. And whenever Blanc, Daniel Craig hits the piano key, Lieutenant Elliot always asks the same question. What time do you, do you arrive at the house? So the piano key was a signal to Elliot to ask the question. <laughs> The circle of knives that is positioned behind the chair during the opening interviews and the final veal is donut shaped with a hole in the center, which is goes 
neatly and nicely with uh, Blanc's whole metaphor for the mystery being a donut. Um, and then, of course, towards the end of the movie, Linda Drysdale reads the letter written by her her father, and she knows that it's invisible ink, so she does like holds a flame to it, and the, the ink shows up. And uh, this is a callback to her initial interrogation where she says to the police, we had our own secret way of communicating. I mean, just like everything falls in line. The fact that uh, Harlan said that Ransom is so spoiled uh, takes life for granted something to that effect that he wouldn't know a prop knife from a real knife. And of course, when he goes to lunge at, uh, Marta, he grabs a knife from that huge knives type, uh, ornamental display, grabs one of the knives and goes to stab her. And of course it's a prop knife. Oh man. So good. So good. So good. Dare I say, like, ready or not better than Knives Out? Ooh, it's close. I don't know. I feel like if you had the cast from Knives Out do Ready or Not, are we talking more about Ready or Not? I don't know. I love them both. Like my children. I just can't pick a favorite. Um. Yeah, but I, I, uh, I thoroughly enjoy this movie. Very good. Very good. Very nice. Very interested to see what they're doing going to do with the sequel. Um, hmm. Yeah, so that's that. Knives out. Uh, Ford versus Ferrari. Let's talk about that real quick. PG-13 movie, two hours and 32 minutes. It was long, but it didn't feel long. Uh, action, biography, drama came out. November 15th, directed by James Mangold, who, looking at this guy's, you know, greatest hits, it's like, I I can't believe I didn't know his name before. He's directed some of my favorites. Logan, very nice. The Wolverine, yeah, it was was all right. Uh, Night and Day, which I didn't hate. Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz. 310 to Yuma, good old Western. With Christian Bale. Walk the Line. Identity. Girl Interrupted in Copland. Copland has one of my favorite all-time lines where Robert De Niro is eating, has a face full of sandwich, and he's talking to Sly Stallone, and he yells, you blew it. You blew it. Oh, I remember, you know, I've said this before, but I remember sitting in that theater when that final scene happens and Sly Stallone is stumbling around and his hearing's gone and there's just that high high piercing whistle or whatever. Copland, I'm surprised Copland, I got to rewatch it because I feel like people don't talk about it enough, but maybe it's the cast kind of outshines everything else, you know, just because of the cast, I think it should have more, uh, more of a legacy. I don't know, dude. It's co uh so Ford versus Ferrari getting back on track. <laughs> Pun intended. It's co-written by Jez Butterworth, great name, who wrote Spectre, Black Mass, and Edge of Tomorrow, otherwise known as Live, Die, Repeat, 
which apparently he's also working on, or he worked on an earlier version of the sequel of Edge of Tomorrow called Live, Die, Repeat, and Repeat, which is such a great title, considering that's, I mean, Live, Die, Repeat is what it's the first movie should have been called, not Edge of Tomorrow. So it'd be interesting how they are going to market that. Like, do they just change the title on everything Edge of Tomorrow, wherever Edge of Tomorrow is? Because people, I know, Live, Die, Repeat is kind of like the tagline that was on Edge of Tomorrow. But I don't know that a lot of people knew that. Anyway. Uh, it was also co-written by John Henry Butterworth, who helped to write, co-write Edge of Tomorrow, and also written by co-written by Jason Keller, who did Machine Gun Preacher in Escape Plan, two movies I have not seen, but I am making a note. Neil, see those movies. Because uh, I can appreciate, I appreciate a good action movie. I appreciate dumb action movies. Sometimes you just want to, I don't know, just want to turn off the brain. Uh, stars Matt Damon as Carol Shelby. Christian Bale as Ken Miles, John Bernthal as Lee Coca, Katriana Balfi as Molly Miles, Ken Miles' wife, Josh Lucas as every bad guy ever. <laughs> He's Leo Beebe and Noah Jupe Jup as Peter Miles, Ken's son. Um, yeah, Josh Lucas is 10 times out of 10 the bad guy. I don't think he's ever been a good guy, and if ever he's a, a good guy in a movie, he will soon become the bad guy in a twist, um, which is not a twist because we know. We look at you, and we see bad guy, and I look at him, and I think, I could do that. I want to be the bad guy in every friggin' movie, and I think I could do it really well, so be on the lookout for that. My next venture, which will fail miserably, actor, <laughs> bad guy actor. Um Critical consensus from Rotten Tomatoes. Ford versus Ferrari delivers all the polished auto action audiences will expect and balances it with enough gripping human drama to satisfy non-racing enthusiasts. I mean, yeah. I mean, that was my major reluctance because we, I mean, this past weekend, we must have scan, skimmed over it, scanned over it, glossed over it a thousand times. I'd stop on it and press press enter i'd click it and i'd be like watch trailer and then i'd like move on and i'd come back to it and move on come back to move on and i was just like i don't know if i want to watch racing seen but what's weird about racing movies is like i always end up enjoying them there was a movie with chris hemsworth where the fuck that was called was it called senna maybe it was something else senna was another racing movie i think but uh one with chris hemsworth was pretty good i like that like this. So I don't know what my resistance is to it, but you, sometimes you think that they're going to get too into the racing and you're going to be like, you lost me. And what's weird is they did. They actually got a lot deep into like the technical jargon of racing, but it was, I think it was just the way that they, you know, Bale and, and Damon you know, talked about it. That really sold me. 92% of critics gave this a favorable review. 7.77 out of 10 every average rating. 98% of the audience gave this a favorable review with a 4.71 out of 5. So that's interesting. 
because you see a 92% of critics and you're like, oh, the average rating must be like a above an eight, almost a nine. And, and no, it's less than an eight. It pulled in 100, yeah, almost 118 mil domestically, 100, another 108 internationally for a worldwide gross 225. Had a budget of 97.6, though. Opened at number one, uh, first weekend, and it fell out of the top 10 Christmas week. And uh, this this next section that I'm talking about is, is going to be a Christian Bale love fest. Fucking love this guy. And I know he's probably a madman when it comes down to it. And if it comes, I mean, if, you know, push comes to shove and like we call spade a spade, Christian Bale probably has an eating disorder. <laughs> In preparation for this role, this is from IMDb Trivia, Christian Bale took race driving lessons at the Bondurant High Performance Driving School. Uh, the founder of the school, I believe is Bob Bondurant, who they mentioned throughout the movie, their friend of Ken Miles. So while he's learning to you know the aspects of driving, he's also got to hear stories about the 1960s racing scene. And Bale's instructor and film stunt coordinator said that Bale is hands down the best actor I've ever trained. I, I don't know. Does he? Does Bale not get enough credit, or does he get too much credit? I feel like he doesn't get enough credit. Maybe, maybe it's just like a given, and like it's just a like a well known fact that we just don't need all to talk about but damn we're witnessing greatness matt damon said the number one reason he wanted to do the movie was to work with christian bale yeah hopefully they'll do more movies together according to matt damon christian bale had to lose 70 pounds before filming began bale had previously gained a lot a shit ton of weight for this role in vice to play don cheney don cheney that's not right dick cheney <laughs> don cheney Ay, uh, and he had about seven months to lose 70 pounds to play the lean race car driver, Ken Miles. Damon asked Bale how he managed to do that, and Bale replied that he simply didn't eat. I mean, come on. You're just not going to eat? I mean, this guy, and I've talked about this before, but it's it bears repeating. This dude went from the machinist in 04, where he was skin and I can't even say skin. He was bones. He was just a skeleton. It was disgusting looking at him. Somehow he didn't win an award for that. Cause I mean, if you, I mean, he deserved the award just for simply doing that, but I guess they didn't want to reward actual sickness because he went from that to playing Bruce Wayne, a very buff Bruce Wayne, muscular Bruce Wayne for Batman begins to, to, uh, d- overweight Dick Cheney to now lean Ken Miles. It's just like, he just did, he, he just didn't eat. He just didn't eat. I mean, if anyone's going to do it, it's bail, I guess. Josh Brolin was supposed to have a cameo, but uh, they were cut out. I wonder who, which character he was supposed to play. Movie was formerly titled Go Like Hell. Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt were considered for the roles. Tom Cruise reliving his uh, Days of Thunder role. Brad Pitt is just, you know. I guess would Cruise have played Ken Miles and Pitt plays Carol Shelby? I don't know. Carol Shelby's, I mean, you know, I think they nailed it with the casting. I don't think... 
I, I just, I, you, I, you know, Matt Damon didn't, didn't, uh, didn't disappoint. I know I was, I, I remember going into it and thinking, okay, Southern accent, is he going to be able to pull it off? Is it going to sound corny? Is it going to sound lame? And no, I mean, he, it was, you know, it was subtle enough that he, he pulled it off. Very interesting curveball that they threw at us though. Cause from the get go, you're thinking this has a very like American beauty type vibe to it where it's like, you know, Carol Shelby's narrating. And I don't know any of the details of either of these lives or these stories. I mean, I remember seeing some YouTube video at some point, like just the title about how Ken Miles did something at Lamont. I was like, okay. But I didn't know any of the details of any of these guys. So I'm watching the movie. I'm thinking, okay, Carol Shelby's got a bad heart, 130 beats per minute resting, has to take, he's just chomping down meds. Like this is basically his life story and how he's going to, you know, at the end they're going to have, he's going to, right at the height of his success, he's going to collapse from a heart attack or something like that. So you got that going on in your brain. And I'm thinking, okay, so this is the story of his rise and demise and blah, blah. And throughout the movie, every like every time there was a a crash or something like that, like, you know, my wife was just like, is this where Ken Miles dies? Is this where Ken Miles dies? Is this where Ken Miles dies? And uh, you know, the non spoiler review, watch it. I mean, literally, you don't have to be into it. It will get you into racing. You don't have to be a racing fan to appreciate this movie. So here's a spoiler review. Uh, even like that first, I guess that first bad crash with Ken Miles with the practice run where the brakes give out and he goes up in flames and you're just, and I was like, there's no way he, I, I, I'm pretty sure this is not how the story goes. Um, but my wife is just, you know, does the typical and, you know, very concerned for this. <laughs> I mean, it was a real person, but for a, an actor playing a person who probably wasn't even in the car when it exploded, but <laughs> she's, you know, she gets into it. And, uh, yeah. So I was like, there's no way that Ken Miles is going out like that. And then, uh, and then the, when he's on the straightaway and it's like, he's, he's going to win and they've already instructed him, you know, the, the Ford higher ups, uh, Leo BB comes down, talks to Carol Shelby and is like, you know, we, we have this photo op that we want to have at the finish line. We're all three Fords since they're one through three finished at the same time. And so it'll, it'll look cool. And, you know, he's a big fuck you to the, the Ferrari team. Um, and he's on that straightaway and he kind of like the narration kicks in. Oh, when you hit 7,000 RPMs, everything slows down, blah, blah. Who are you? And so he, you know, in his head, he's think, Ken Miles is thinking, well, I don't want to go down as this, you know, I've been seen as such a stubborn mule this entire movie, this entire story with Ford. Like, I'm going to be a team player. I'm going to, I'm going to actually sacrifice you know, breaking more records, even though he broke so many. And I'm going to slow down for these other two 
slow pokes to catch up to me and then we'll do this like you know really grand gesture and of course it ends up costing him <laughs> ends up costing costing him the win which is such a kick in the dick my goodness um but uh but like just and also you know I do like how they handled it. Like that was really cool how, you know, um, I think there was so much fight in these men, Shelby and Miles, and there was, uh, they had so much passion for the game and for the race and for them to get gypped like that. I thought it was going to go down a different route, but instead it was just like, to just kind of console each other, not didn't overreact. And we're just like, we're just going to build a better car and win and kick their asses. It was just like such a nice way to end it. And then, Oh, we're going to do this practice run with this new car and it's got a honeycomb design. And then he, he goes, it was just so, it was just, it was just like such, they pulled like the rug out from underneath us. And I guess anyone who's familiar with the situation knows, you know, what was going to happen. But for someone like me born in 80, my wife born in 86, so I don't know shit about any of this because we're not racing fans and we don't know either of these men. I mean, I know the name Shelby. Uh but to but to see like the way that they handled the uh Ken Miles's accident, fatal accident where like he's hitting the brakes and like nothing's going, nothing's happening. It just happens so quick. You know, you watch a two and a half hour movie and there's all these close calls and whatnot and then all of a sudden it's like in a second or two it's gone. And I guess that's the point. You know, it can all just go away in a second when you're, when you're racing at that kind of speed. Um, interesting that they didn't go more into Carol Shelby's life. I mean, I didn't, I probably should have looked this up, but it's like, does he have a family? Was he just too, like, uh, was he too involved in his craft to have a family? It's very interesting that they wouldn't go into that at all. They went into Ken Miles' family. Um, let's see here. Personal life, personal life, personal life, personal life. Boom. Oh, well, see, now, why didn't they, I think this, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> I think this would have been funny. I mean, he probably doesn't think it's funny. And maybe that's why they didn't include the movie. But Shelby was, according to Wikipedia, was married seven times. That could have been a nice little running gag throughout the movie. And it also, it also is a nice... Uh, <sighs> Neil, you've done drunk yourself dumb. Transfi transposition? Transposition. Transfixation. <laughs> what is it? Transposition. That can't be it. No, that's not it. Transposition? <laughs> that's not it. What is it? Uh, I don't know. The, the 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 two opposing forces here. So you got Ken Miles, married man, son, and then you have Shelby, who's eternally like getting married, and divorced. 
why wouldn't they go into that? I guess because it's already at two and a half hours long and it's like you, you stuff any more to this and people are going to lose their attention. But I mean, seven times, three, three, I mean, so many kids, extramarital affairs, annulled. I mean, Carol Shelby's life, very interesting. And I feel like they did not, they didn't even touch any of that. That's really interesting to me. Huh. So they focus on Ken Miles, which I, I get. I mean, it's just interesting. Like, I don't know. Anyway. Uh, I mean, this is a fun fact that I like about it. Carol Shelby, and it gives me a little hope. Everything I watch gives me a little bit of hope. Um, I just filed away in the old bean. Carol Shelby's 1959 Le Mans victory in an Aston Martin DBR1 was especially sweet for him because Ferrari had rejected him as a factory driver. Um, and, you know, that's that's my goal in life. How do I get revenge on my enemies? <laughs> uh, two more Marvies, movies I'll talk about really quickly <laughs> um, that I, I highly recommend that are under the radar, underrated, you uh, are not going to, like, they're not huge, big-budget movies. I, I I would consider them to be, like, indie flicks. But they have a big, big-budget concepts. They're, like, high-concept, big-premise, but, uh, but low-budget. First is After Midnight, which was originally called Something Else. Um, it's an hour and 23 minutes, drama, horror, comedy, sci-fi. Uh, came out, yeah, released on streaming services probably in the past week or so. Debuted at the Tribeca Film Festival April 26th. The synopsis is 10 years into his small town storybook romance with Abby. Hank suddenly wakes up in an empty home with nothing but a cryptic note to explain why she left. Hank's life begins to fall apart to make matters worse ever since Abby disappeared. This ferocious monster creature uh, has come out of nowhere and is trying to enter the house. It's from the producers of The Endless, which is another one of those high-concept, uh, unique premise films that was low-budget but still very entertaining. Uh, critics' consensus from Rotten Tomatoes is part creature feature, part romance after midnight somehow manages to combine its disparate ingredients and come up with something special. 86% of critics gave it a favorable review. And uh, I guess I didn't update this, but like I just saw the audience score for this and it's like 44%. So, you know, I'm starting to think I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't, I'm not a good judge of content or quality or, or anything. <laughs> it was written, directed by Jeremy Gardner, who also starred as Hank. Um, and, uh, I mean, there are a bunch of other actors and actresses very talented who do very well in this. But uh, the, the person that I want to point out is Henry Zabrowski, who plays Wade, uh, Hank's friend. So goddamn funny in this movie. And he's been funny his whole career. Um, if you're an Adult Swim fan like I am, uh, he is one of the characters in Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell. There's also, I think he's also a member of a sketch comedy group called Murder Fist which I, yeah, if you got some time on your hands, 
just go on YouTube and uh and Google Murder Fest. You'll 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 thank me later. You don't have to, but you will. Um but I, I liked I can I can probably see maybe why the audience didn't like it. I know I, I talked it up a lot to my wife. And when my wife came home from San Fran, I was like, you know, uh, if you're looking for something to watch, I don't mind if you want to re if you want to watch after midnight. We still have it for 48 hours, so you can still have you you can still watch it. And I'm I don't mind while you watch it. And she did, and she was just like, nope. <laughs> there was the and I can see where she's coming from. Uh, the film's only you know the film's only. <sighs> 83 minutes you know it's not a very long movie but there is a section of the movie where it feel i guess to her it felt repetitive where it's like i'm just watching the same thing over and over again like where is this movie going where is this going where is this going so there is that stretch but i don't know i appreciated it i like the it's you know feels familiar but is different um and uh, I mean, I was just, I was really impressed with the one scene where it's him and her, Hank and Abby, and Abby's return, spoiler alert, and they have that, they're, they have the doors open waiting for the monster to come, and they just have this this talk where it starts off kind of slow, and it's like, and then it builds to them really revealing to each other, to and to us, the audience, what was going on. Um and I just thought even that shot, like, it's one take and it starts off kind of wide where it's like you see, like, the porch and then it's just slowly, slowly without, and you don't really notice it until, like, towards the end of that interaction and that scene that the, the, the camera has come in and come in very slowly in on them. Um, but the ending, I just love the ending, too, because, like, you're, they're all around the dinner table. And uh, I don't know. I want you to watch it. So I guess fast forward if you don't want to hear what happens. But like even my wife was like, so it's going to happen now. It's going to happen now. It's going to happen now. <laughs> I like how they played on that because they know they know we're familiar with the tropes and we're familiar how these kind of movies work. And so they were kind of played on that too, like. So he said that, so now it's going to happen. And like, oh, no, no, so now it's going to happen. So like we're like anticipating, anticipating, anticipating until finally they hit you with it. And even then, it still catches you off guard and scares you. So I liked it. I guess, uh, you know, for a lot of people, it just didn't hit the right chord. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, Jeremy Gardner as Hank did a pretty – good job i can see why maybe people did not weren't in on him i just really like wade henry zabowski i thought that was he was so goddamn funny um the other movie that was a uh, little known under the radar uh coherence came out 2013 um about an hour and a half drama horror mystery sci-fi uh well, I guess it was made in 2013 and released in August 2014. Um, I could give you the names of the actors. I don't think anyone would really know who most of them are. Uh, the Critics' Consensus, A Case Study in Less 
is more filmmaking, Coherence serves as a compelling low-budget calling card for debuting writer-director James Ward Birkitt. Birkitt? 80% of uh, critics gave it a favorite review with a 7.27 out of 10 average rating. Audience, uh, did I even, oh, 81% of the audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 81% of the audience gave it a favorable review with a 3.85 out of 5. Um, and this is makes me cringe because I feel like this is a tr- is just a, a misjustice. Miscarriage of justice? Yeah, maybe that's it. This film brought in $102,000 domestically and $139,000 total. Oh, boy. But had a budget of fifty thousand, so it still made it back. Thank God, because I feel like this movie deserves more than that. It really does. It was a good movie, and it kept me interested. Which, considering you know how movies, you know what movies are making the money at the box office, and and. And whatnot, I think, you know, this is a significant achievement. Um, movie was shot, of course, on a budget of $50,000. was shot over five nights in a single location where dialogue was most largely improvised. Um, the director used his own house as the setting, and his wife was eight and a half months pregnant and wanted a home birth, so she agreed to let him... Uh, film there as long as he could do it in five days and he did (laughs) story took a year to write um the woman who plays lee had the least idea of what movie was being filmed since the rest of the cast had done test footage before so she hadn't done any test footage she only knew it was going to be improvised and about the third day of filming she realized it wasn't supposed to be a big broad comedy (laughs) can you imagine being in her shoes Lee. So Lee was the character with the, uh, I guess, the glasses and the long black hair. Um, She had just finished writing and directing Seeking a Friend for the End of the World before filming, which uh, I think that was Kira Knightley and Michael Scott. It is so, you know, you get on this microphone and your fucking memory just goes to shit. I can't, like, the guy who plays Michael Scott. Hmm. That's amazing. Come on. The guy who played Michael Scott. Come on, brain. Come on, brain. Come on, brain. Steve Carell. Ooh, ooh, boy. You know what? I, I feel like I need to be examined. I feel like I need a CAT scan after that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> some scenes were reshot six months later, and, and this, <laughs> the woman who played Lee changed her hair during that time, so they spent $8,000 getting a wig that matched her original hair. <laughs> this was as much budget as the entire first shoot. Amazing. Uh, the woman who plays M figured she was the lead of the film around the time that's shown that she figures out what the numbers mean. 
and the car that she knocks out her doppelganger in is her real car in real life. <laughs> I just love it. I love everything about the movie. Some really great, great moments uh, that I don't want to spoil for you. But I think the moment where she... Uh, so the knock on the door, obviously that was big. But the moment where she goes to her car to get, goes in the glove compartment to get like a ring and then comes out and like her, her boyfriend's standing there and she goes to hug him. And then they have that moment where it's like, whoa, you're not the version of the person that I know you're the other version. I can't even explain this movie. I don't know. I don't know that I'm going to accurately explain this movie. So I hope that you have take some time out of your life and fucking watch it because it's amazing. All right. So that's movies. <laughs> Not bad. Hour and a half to, to just fucking motor through like 17 movies. Pretty good. Stuck Mets. Um, yet again, I'm not a great Mets fan. I, I know that. I, I've been told that many a time, but they are my team. Okay. And so I feel uh, it's my duty to give my uh, very lukewarm takes on what's going on. Spring training has sprung. Uh, and with it comes our hopes getting dashed, or like at least we're getting legitimately scared. We get some scares. JD Davis, of course, falls the wrong way on his shoulder, I guess, playing third. And, uh, Turns out he will miss at least a week and has no structural shoulder damage, but that was on the 26th of February, which I guess was Wednesday. So he should be back in the lineup, I guess, this coming week. Although I guess the MRI or whatever they did exposed that he had an old labrum injury, um, which the team said they had they do have knowledge of and they are not concerned with. Of course, watch that come back to haunt us. It's at a critical juncture in the season. For sure. Luis Rojas is not concerned after Brendan Nimmo's precautionary cardiac screening uh, came back all right. Apparently, he is a, an irregular heartbeat that the team has known about for years. So we have a guy with an old labrum injury the team has known about for years. And we have a guy with an irregular heartbeat that the team knows about for years. It's like, <laughs> ugh. And, uh, of course, Nimmo has been cleared for baseball activity. Um, but... It's just not doing great for my confidence. My confidence has already been shook to its core. And now I have like, you know, guys just having little things here and there. You just, you think, and that's the thing about the Mets is like right when you think you got something good and you're like in a great position to succeed and win, you just have little things here and there. And, you know, fucking Lugo's pinky toe and Davis's shoulder and Nimmo's heart. <laughs> Joe Madden, this is not, I mean, it's kind of Mets related, but whatever. Joe Madden, who's the Angels manager now, says it's a pretty safe bet. Hansel Robles, Hansel Robles will open the season as the Angels closer. <laughs> That's rich. And watch him go on and be like the, you know, Rolaids firefighting saver of the year, whatever the fuck it's called. Um, I have not watched any spring training games. I just cannot bring myself to do it. Because it's just like false positives and you don't know what you're getting. You really don't. You know, it looks like from our catcher's group, right? 
uh, you know, Wilson Ramos looks like he's hitting the ball fairly well. 333 batting average. He's got four hits and 12 at bats with a run scored, a home run, three RBIs, and a strikeout. Um, but the baseball reference has this cool little category column here. It's like quality of opposing pitchers or batters faced. 10 is Major League Baseball, 8 is AAA, 7 is AA. And like most of these numbers fall into in the like 6 to 8 range. So it's like you're not facing major league talent. You're facing like double A to triple A guys. So it's it's hard to put a lot of stock or faith into these numbers if they're great or good. But if they're bad, that's not great. And like Thomas Nito, struggling. You know, Andres uh, Jimenez looks good. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. Alex Torres, you fuckface. Uh, Louis Guillaume, not doing well. Below the Mendoza yet again. Ay, ay, ay. Um, you know, Jeff McNeil's hitting 400, 400, which is nice. Ahmed Rosario, uh, according to this, yet to have a hit in nine plate appearances. Not great. Two strikeouts. J.D. Davis, only seven plate appearances, but batting 400. In the outfield, you know, Ryan Cordell has the most plate appearances. Like, who the fuck is that? <laughs> Conforto just had a birthday, hitting 231. Tim Tebow, he went yard. I heard about that. Uh, Nimmo's hitting 444, which is great. Jake Marisnik, the uh, off-season pickup, just kind of doing whatever. I guess he looks all right. Um, so nothing, nothing really crazy there. P. Alonzo hitting .067. He has 15 at-bats. One hit, one run, and then it was a double. And he's also been caught stealing. So I don't know. I you know, it's spring training. You're supposed to the guys that you know about and that are are locked in. You shouldn't really have to worry about. Um, the guys that are on the fence. Those are the ones that really need to stand out and overperform. Like, uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna say like it's a bit concerning that. Marcus Stroman is, you know, started two games, pitched only three and two-thirds, but has a 4.91 ERA, 1.636 whip. It's not great. I guess Noah looks good, which is awesome. Um, Matt's had a nice outing, I guess. Three innings, two hits, one run. Of course, like his the first batter he faces goes yards. So that's not <laughs> not a great look. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know that I put a lot. I guess it's nice to see that like Daniel Zamora, three innings pitch, one hit, four strikeouts. That's that's stuff you want to. It's good to see. So hopefully he's uh, able to provide us with some help out of the bullpen against the lefties. Um, 
Yeah, so that's Mets Talk. So if you're tuning in to me for Mets Talk, apologize. Apologies. Um, but uh, tell you, if Steven Matz can actually turn it around, I wouldn't hate that. Um, Jesus Christ. Yeah, just going back to uh, the movies and television portion of the show. I forgot to mention that Sam Morrill has a new stand-up special on YouTube called I Got This. And uh, I tweeted out that it has Sam Morrill has the best stand-up comedy special in years. Um, which I, I, I'm, I'm not a big, you know, I don't tend to hype or get, you know, crazy with hyperbole or exaggeration often, but like I, I and I was also pretty tipsy at this point. Cause I, you know, I typically watch the movie, have a couple tall, cold ones during the movie. And then I turn it, try to watch like a stand up special to kind of, you know, bring me back down. And kind of get me to a better place mentally because sometimes these movies I watch are a little bit of a mind fuck. So it's nice to have some comedy to like ease the ease me back down to earth. So uh, it's possible that the uh, I could blame it on the alcohol with the Sam Real special, but I dare you to watch it and not think it's one of the better ones of, the, of in recent history. Um. So. Yeah, Sam Morrill, I got this. Definitely check it out. All right, let's talk Giants. The day has come where uh, it's finally happened. We've been talking and talking and talking about who's going to get released, and, of course, the releases have started. Giants release Alec Ogletree and Kareem Martin, saving about $13 million in the cap. Um, You know, I wouldn't say that Alec Ogletree was a huge bust. I don't think he was a gigantic disappointment. I think Kareem Martin for sure was a bust and a disappointment. But I think that we were looking for a lot more. Our expectations for Ogletree were a lot higher. And uh, even though his numbers might not reflect it, because you look at his numbers and you think, this is pretty solid. It's like he did miss three games each season, which is not a lot, but still um, I think you know we were looking him at him to be uh, uh, an outstanding coverage linebacker and that was ultimately not really the case and he just he just got fucking demolished in the run game I mean just could not you know I mean he's he's meeting blockers at at like where he stands you know so and then would get blown back so you know not great against the run good coverage backer who didn't really do that when, in, during his time with the Giants. Kareem Martin was just like, just a, just overall, just a complete bust. Um, missed pretty much all of last season and didn't really show up in the previous season. Another guy that people think is going to get released, Rhett Ellison, is apparently mulling retirement. And uh, I forget what day this came out. So it's possible he did retire since then. Sorry. I've been, I've been busy. Um, so he's mulling retirement after a season-ending concussion. He's due $7 million this upcoming season, and we'd only incur 
about less than three million in dead cap if we decided to move on from him. Which I guess if he retires, we also uh, incur that dead cap. So, um, you know, in my opinion, it was a weird move to bring him in to begin with for the amount of money that we were paying him. I could see if we were paying him less to do that, but like to, to pay him the amount of money that we did for the role that he was going to take on, it just did, didn't pay out, didn't pay off. Uh, and we now that we have, I guess they have seen enough out of Caden Smith to say, yeah, you're the real deal. Like you, you have the blocking abilities and you've shown that you can catch the ball um, and be uh, a weapon. I guess, you know, Rhett Ellison's time is pretty much done though, unless he restructures. But I don't, I don't know that he's, I mean, if he's mulling retirement, it's like, I don't think he's really open to that. Uh, I thought there was an outside chance that Greg Olson might want to join the Giants, but I, cause I thought he's, a, he's from Wayne, New Jersey, North Jersey. And you think, okay, North Jersey guy, uh, born and raised, make, you know, he's either like a Giants or a Jets fan, right? And he's probably not. And I, I had to guess he's probably like a Cowboys fan, that fuck. Um, so it turns out he, he was not even considering the Giants, which is kind of like, you think you'd want to come back home? You know, you'd be like, what, 10, 15 minutes from home? Nope. Uh, Giants have to decide, speaking of tight ends, Giants have to decide by May whether to pick up Engram's fifth-year contract option for 2021. Ooh, that is a... Mm, that is a toughie. Because the dude cannot stay on the field, but when he is on the field and he is healthy, he is electric. So it is quite the conundrum. And I think, and uh, I remember after the Redskins game, after seeing that video of him like mic'd up behind the scenes, I was like, this guy has got it. And I, I encouraged and I implored management to sign him to a long-term contract and then he, and then he immediately like got hurt. <laughs> So, um, to me, it's like, I just don't think he's a tight end. I've said this and I just think he just move him to, to a third wide receiver and have him and just, and just like have him match up on people that can't match up with him and exploit those matchups every damn game to the tune of five catches a game and at least a touch every other game I see him nabbing 80 grabs next year with uh, eight touchdowns or around you know 800 yards and I think if you can get that out of him for the rest of his career as a third wide out uh, I'll take that to the bank um, the Giants are a potential suitor for Tom Brady get the F out of here, dude. There's not a shot. All this shit. I mean, it, Tom Brady has has now uh, approached like that NBA this league type level of craziness, where like the top free agents in the NBA 
like any and everything that happens, any tweet, any Instagram post, anything on video that they catch, people are reading lips. People are like trying to interpret shit. Like that's where Tom Brady's at right now. He's approached like NBA impending free agent type level hysteria. It's insane. He's going back to the Patriots. I mean, that's like, it's not even a question. I don't even understand how people are entertaining the idea that he's going to the Titans because he was talking to Vrabel with Edelman at the Syracuse game, you know, and that same game, like there's video of Edelman saying like, he's coming back, he's coming back. And then Tom shaking his head and saying, no, he's not. And it's like, Tom is living, Tom is definitely playing this up because he knows it's going to get clicks and engagements. And his social media team is not dumb. As soon as they like got on social media, it was just like, I'm going to pay someone a very uh, healthy amount of money to make my socials blow the F up. And uh, they've done a phenomenal job because it's like even, you know, the fucking Hulu ad or whatever it was for the Super Bowl. It's like they teased the hell out of that and people bought it hook, line, and sinker. And they're doing it every single day, anytime something happens with them. And it's just madness. I'm not buying into it. No way is he going to the Giants. If he goes to the Giants, I mean, name your price, my man. I'll eat my underwear. I'll lick a boot. Like, yeah, you know, the mind is not exactly operating at 100% right now. It's Sunday night, almost 11 o'clock. So, uh, but you name it, I'll do it. No shot he's coming to the Giants. Um, You know, people are saying, well, we have the cap space. And Joe Judges came from the Patriots and he has a good relationship with Brady. It's like, do you really know that he has a good relationship with Brady? And we have the cap space. And like New York is a, is where Tom and Giselle want to be. You know, they've been spotted in New York and they want to relocate here. And it's like, all right, maybe I get that. And it's like, they're, well, they're not going to go play for the Jets. Although if you want to get back of the Patriots, no better way than to play for the Jets. But no, I just, it's not happening. Uh, the Giants are also a potential suitor for Jadavian Clowney. This one's a little bit not as cut and dry for me. I just don't, you know, I think Carl Banks has been really going in on it on Twitter, like Jadavian Clowney versus Leonard Williams, saying Leonard Williams is more versatile. Uh, Jadavian Clowney, though, is only 27. I know Leonard Williams is only 26. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, my immediate reaction was no. Like he's probably going to be too much money. You know, if we're if we're if we uh, when it really comes down to it, the bottom line is he's just too expensive, and he's not going to give you the value for that for all that money you're giving out. But I mean, they need a pass rusher, and if they're not going to resign. Marcus Golden, then it's like, where is your pass rush coming from? So, I, I don't know. He says, Clowney says he wants to go back to Seattle, but uh, it's not a franchise tag in there. Huh. I don't know. Sean Lee said he would definitely consider playing for the Giants. Uh, that's a hard pass. I don't know his numbers right off the top of my head, but I do know that Sean Lee is like perpetually the guy who's always getting smoke blown up his ass. People are all about it, hanging off these nuts, and then he gets hurt every friggin' year. No 
Thanks. We don't need old dudes who get hurt. We need youngish, not straight out of college talent that stays on the field and is available and just makes, just does their job. <laughs> does their job. That's like the Joe Judge way right now. Just do your job, execute. We're not looking for anything flashy. We're not looking for like crazy, uh, outstanding numbers. Just do your job. That's the kind of vibe that I'm getting. Yannick Nguakwe is now seeking about $22 million annually. The franchise tag that the Jaguars can put on him would be $19 million. And he said that he probably wouldn't report until like mid-August or something like that. That's a that's another hard pass. I understand pass rush, pass rush comes at a premium. But you also don't want to price yourself out of helping other areas of the team. Uh, mm. It's just, it's just tough. It's tough to justify something like that where it's like, okay, you sign him 22 mil and then like he gets the 10 sacks, but like, I don't know. Pass rush is so important. And we just, other than golden, we just didn't really have it. So it's a lot of money. I mean, we have like, we're going to have like 60 some odd million in cap and to, to, and to, take more than a third of that for one player is that one player going to make that much of a difference uh, i just can't see it but gotta do something <laughs> uh dave gettleman has said he's open for business for the number four pick which is which is great but then you read this stat from espn the only time the giants have traded down in the first round in the common draft era since 1967 was in 2006 when they sent the 25th pick to the steelers who picked santonio holmes uh, in return for the 32nd pick the giants selected matthias matthias kiwanuka and two additional picks in the third and fourth rounds which they didn't even mention the names so they couldn't have panned out that well <laughs> And if you're going to ask me who won that tr who won that trade, Santonio Holmes, I mean, that catch in the Super Bowl won the game for them. Uh, Kiwanuka, solid player, versatile, played you know DND tackle linebacker, but I hear his name and all I can think about is that damn play against the Titans. You know the one I'm talking about, where he had Vince Young in his grips and they let him go and the Titans go down to win the game. So would we, would I rather have had Santonio Holmes? Meh. Jarris Wilkinson was our third-round pick. And Barry Cofield was our fourth-round pick. So, I mean, Barry Cofield was... Uh, was pretty solid, but then our other fourth round pick was Guy Wimper. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Santonio, so essentially, Santonio Holmes versus Kubanuka and Cofield. Well, Cofield was like our original pick, so I don't know. Not a not. Would I rather have Santonio Holmes? Considering how everything played out with Plex, 
yeah, whatever. So he says he's open for business. And but he's also kind of couched it with like, oh, you know, there's downsides to trading back. Like if we trade back from four to eight and the four guys we want are gone by the time eight comes around, it's like, yeah, I understand, but what are the odds? Like, don't you take you would take that into consideration when trading down or trading back? Like, are we gonna lose out on the guys that we want? I mean, that's something you gotta, you know, Vontae Mac, no matter what. Uh but to me, it sounds it it feels like we're going with Isaiah Simmons, and I am I am completely a thousand percent on board with that. Uh, I think, you know, he is the like defensive equivalent of Saquon Barkley. I remember before that 2018 draft when Saquon Barkley was at the combine, and they put up I think it was like NFL or some account put up his numbers and said like this number is this bench press is better than offensive lineman. This 40 is better than a wide receiver. This blah, blah, blah is better than this. Like he was better than uh, the top people at, at each position, different positions that weren't running back position. And I remember seeing that. And that, when I saw that tweet in 2018, I was like, I was on the fence about Saquon going into that draft. And I was like, oh, do we really need a running back? There's, you know, we could just think about quarterbacks, but like, I think Eli still got it. Like, should we go offensive line? And then I saw that tweet about how he's just like, you know, faster than so and so, taller than so and so, jumps higher, longer than so and so, like top players at their own respective positions, not the running back position. But he has all that in a running back. I was like, yep, sign me up, subscribe. I'm all about. Saquon go on, going in on Saquon and that same tweet happened with Isaiah Simmons. He's taller than DK Metcalf, heavier than Roquan Smith, faster than Devin Hester, jumps higher than Julio Jones and more explosive than Alvin Kamara. I mean, I don't know what you need to know beyond that. And I know there, there are combine superstars. There was a story about how like Terrell Suggs really underwhelmed people at the at the combine, and then the Ravens still draft draft him, and he's going to be a Hall of Famer. So, I know the combine's not the be all to end all, but at the same time, those are hard to ignore. And uh, you look at like the draft tracker right now. Chase Young has the top grade with seven point four zero, which that grade is the equivalent of like, quote unquote a perennial all-pro. It's kind of hard to swallow. Uh, but then you have Isaiah Simmons is the fourth highest graded overall prospect in the draft. 7.08, which is a perennial all-pro as well. So, I mean, as much as I know that we need offensive linemen, Um, you know, ideally, and this probably won't happen, but it would be nice to trade back two spots, pick up another first round pick possibly. I don't know how that's possible, but still get his, still get Simmons at like six and then like draft an offense and a top offensive lineman in the, in the top of the second round or the first round. That would be sweet, but I don't know. There's been talks about like who who do you want? Um, 
with like uh, there's Makai Becton from Louisville. There's Andrew Thomas, I guess, from Georgia. And there's Tristan Tristan Wirfs from Iowa. And apparently the Giants are fell in love with Tristan Wirfs. So I am all for drafting a, an offensive lineman high that has like a grade that, you know, even a grade of like, you know, I'm looking at the grades here. We're looking at the top offensive line prospects. You got Jedrick Wills, I think that says Willis Wills, uh, from Bama is number one at six point eight nine. Then Makai Becton at six point four nine. Andrew Thomas at six point four eight, and Tristan Wirfs at six point four six. Um. The grading is is weird on this, by the way. I'm reading it now. It's like eight is the perfect prospect, which uh, <laughs> it's funny. 7.3 to 7.5 is perennial all pro. 7.0 to 7.1 is pro ball talent. 6.7 to 6.8 is year one quality starter. 6.5 is boom or bust prospect. And then 6.3 to 6.4 is will be starter within the first two seasons. Like what? <laughs> Why is six point five boom or buzz prospect? <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, so I'd be good with with any of those three dudes. Although McBecton is a beast, six seven three sixty eight, but apparently didn't test well on the bench. Um. So, but I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm having visions of Isaiah Simmons in a, in a Giants jersey, just flying around and fucking shit up. And I love it. And if Gettleman's a def defense guy, uh, this is his chance. This is going to be huge off season for him to really bolster the defense through the draft and through free agency. And it almost feels like a repeat of 2016 where we did go heavy on the defensive side of the ball in free agency and it paid off dividends that year to go to the playoffs. Um, which, you know, that's what people are talking about now is like uh, a lot of people coming to Gettleman's defense now and saying like, well, you know, we got, we got pissed at him for jettisoning jettisoning Damon Harrison and Olivier Vernon. Um, but Snacks just got released by the Lions and the Browns just released Olivier Vernon. So, you know, I think it was it was that that offseason was kind of like Jerry Reese pushing all his chips in the middle of the table, a la Jim Fossil, and saying, like, here's my last hurrah, this is my last ditch effort. And uh, it paid off year one, did not year two. So hopefully Gettleman has taken that into account and is, and is saying to himself, okay, maybe we don't like break the bank on three dudes. Maybe we spread it out and, and get like five guys that will give us more than one year of uh, quality play. All right. So that's a giant mess. Episode 29.
Thank you so much for listening and watching. My, uh, you can find me on all the socials. I don't do anything on them. <laughs> I'm just there, creeping, lurking. Real Cinch on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Facebook.com slash Giant Mess. Hit me up on the hotline, 862-BIT-1986. 862-BIT-1986. And uh, catch you later. Adios, muchachos.